Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. America's public energy conversation really boils down to this uncomfortable question. Would you rather die of oil wars, A, or B, climate change, or C, nuclear holocaust? Or D, all of the above. Oh, I missed one. Or E, none of the above. (laughs) What if we could make energy do our work without working our undoing? Could we have fuel without fear? Could we reinvent fire? Fire made us human, fossil fuels made us modern. Now we need a new fire that makes us safe, secure, and durable. This has become possible. In fact, it works better and costs less than what we're doing. So let's explore how. Four-fifths of the world's energy still comes from burning every year a bit over four cubic miles of the rotted remains of primeval swamp goo. (laughs) Those fossil fuels have built our civilization and created our wealth and enriched the lives of billions. But their rising costs to our economy, security, health, environment are eroding, if not outweighing, their benefits. So we need a new fire. And switching from the old fire to the new fire uh, means changing two big stories about oil and electricity, each of which puts out two-fifths of the fossil carbon going in the air. But these two are distinct. Uh, Less than 1% of our electricity is made from oil, but almost half our electricity comes from coal. Three-fourths of our oil fuels transportation. Three-fourths of our electricity runs buildings. The rest of both runs factories. So very efficient vehicles, buildings, and factories save a lot of oil and coal and natural gas that can displace both of them. But today's energy system is not just inefficient. It is also disconnected and aging and dirty and insecure, so it needs refurbishment. By 2050, though, it could become efficient, connected, and distributed with elegantly frugal autos, factories, and buildings, all relying on a secure, modern, resilient electricity system. We can eliminate our addiction to oil and coal by 2050 and use one-third less natural gas while uh, shifting to efficient use and to renewable supplies. By 2050, this could cost $5 trillion less in net present value than business as usual, assuming that all external or hidden costs of getting and using the energy are worth zero, a conservatively low estimate. But this cheaper energy system could support a 158% bigger U.S. economy, all without oil or coal or nuclear energy. Moreover, this transition requires no new inventions and no new federal taxes, subsidies, mandates, or laws, and running Washington gridlock. 
Let me say that again. I'm going to tell you how the United States can get completely off oil and coal, $5 trillion cheaper, with no act of Congress led by business for profit. So this transition will be designed and driven from the C-suite, not from K Street. It uses our most effective institutions, private enterprise co-evolving with civil society, sped by military innovation, to go around our least effective institutions. And whether you most care about profits and jobs and competitive advantage, or about national security, or about environmental stewardship, climate protection, public health, reinventing fire makes sense and makes money. General Eisenhower <coughs> reputedly said uh, <coughs> that expanding the boundaries of a tough problem makes it soluble by encompassing more options and synergies and degrees of freedom that its solution requires. So reinventing fire integrates all four energy-using sectors, transportation, buildings, industry, and electricity. And it also integrates four kinds of innovation, not just the normal two, technology and public policy, but also design, the way we combine technologies, and strategy, new competitive strategies, new business models. Uh, these combinations are a lot more than the sum of the parts, especially in creating deeply disruptive business opportunities. In truth, we would save a lot more than $5 trillion. Uh, for example, America burns oil costing $2 billion a day, but its hidden costs pay not at the pump, but through our taxes and incomes are another $4 billion a day, at least, or $1.5 trillion a year in three roughly equal parts. The first half trillion dollars a year <coughs> uh, is uh, sucked out of our economy mainly by OPEC's monopoly pricing, which our oil dependence makes possible. The second half trillion dollars a year is the market value of oil's price volatility. Of course, that whipsaws our, our whole economy. For 40 years, oil price spikes have preceded every recession. But just the daily yo-yo of oil prices imposes about a half trillion dollars a year of risk and cost on oil users. And then we pay the third half trillion dollars a year to keep military forces ready for intervention in the Persian Gulf. That is 10 times what we pay for oil from the Persian Gulf, uh, and it rivals our total defense spending at the height of the Cold War. Oil is also finite. The Pentagon is preparing to need no oil. The rest of us should, too. We should be getting off the stuff just for durability, security, saving money at the pump, even if the hidden costs were not, in effect, tripling the pump price and bringing the total cost of oil to about a sixth of GDP, not counting any damage that it does to uh, health, safety, environment, global development and stability, or our nation's uh, independence and reputation. So where to start? Our mobility fuel goes three-fifths to automobiles. So a good place to start would be making autos oil-free. Two-thirds of the energy needed to move a typical car is caused by its weight. And every unit of energy you save at the wheels by taking out weight or drag saves <clears throat> six more units. You don't need to waste getting it to the wheels, so it saves altogether seven units of fuel at the tank. 
However, for the past quarter century, our uh, two-ton autos have suffered epidemic obesity. They've gained weight twice as fast as we have. Uh, but today, ultralight, ultra-strong materials uh, like carbon fiber composites can make dramatic weight savings snowball and can make autos simpler and cheaper to build. Uh, lighter and more slippery autos need less force to move them so their engines get smaller. And such vehicle fitness then makes electric autos affordable because their batteries or fuel cells get two or three times smaller, lighter, and cheaper. So their sticker price will fall to about today's level with far lower driving costs. Uh, these innovations can together transform automakers from wringing tiny savings out of Victorian steel stamping and engine technologies uh, to the steeply falling costs of three mutually reinforcing technologies, the advanced ultralight materials, how to make them into structures, and electric powertrain. The sales can grow and prices can drop even faster with temporary fee baits, that is, uh, rebates to efficient new cars paid for by fees on inefficient ones. In the first two years, the biggest of five European fee-bait programs tripled the size of improving auto efficiency. The resulting shift to electric autos is going to be as game-changing as shifting from small refinements in typewriters to the dramatic Moore's Law-driven gains in computers. Of course, computers and electronics are now America's biggest industry while typewriter makers have vanished. So vehicle fitness opens a new automotive competitive strategy that can double the expected oil savings over the next 40 years, but also can make affordable the electrification that saves the rest of the oil. America could lead this next automotive revolution. The current leader, though, is Germany. Uh, last year, Volkswagen announced 2013 production of this 230-mile-a-gallon uh, plug-in hybrid carbon fiber car, and BMW also announced 2013 production of this carbon fiber electric car. They confirmed that its carbon fiber is paid for by needing fewer batteries, and their CEO said, we do not intend to be a typewriter maker, because they can look across Munich to where Olympia used to make excellent typewriters. Audi, by the way, claimed it's going to beat them both by a year. Now, there is still some interesting potential for American competitive advantage. I brought along, for example, a carbon cap uh, that, was, uh, that was made uh, seven years ago in one minute by an American process from one of our little spinoffs. You can tell from the sound it is immensely strong and stiff. Uh, and very, very light. It's tougher than titanium, so don't worry about dropping it. Uh, Tom Friedman whacked it as hard as he could with a sledgehammer without even scuffing it. Well, such manufacturing techniques for ultralight structures can scale to automotive cost and speed with aerospace performance. And when fully adopted in the U.S., they could uh, cut automaking's capital needs by four-fifths. They could save a lot of lives because these materials can uh, absorb six to 12 times as much crash energy per pound of steel. And they would save oil equivalent to finding one and a half Saudi Arabias or half an OPEC by drilling in the Detroit Formation, a very prospective play. Uh, we've just been drilling in the wrong places. And those mega barrels under Detroit cost $18 a barrel, 
and they are all-American, carbon-free, and inexhaustible. The same physics and the same business logic also apply to big vehicles. In the five years end of 2010, Walmart uh, cut its fuel per ton mile in its big fleet of heavy trucks by 60% through better design than logistics. Just the design, the technology part, can ultimately triple the efficiency of heavy trucks. And when you combine that with the three to five-fold more efficient airplanes now on the drawing boards, you get to nearly a trillion dollar present valued savings. Also, today's military revolution in energy efficiency will speed up all these civilian advances in much the way that military R&D in the past uh, gave us the internet and the global positioning system and the jet engine and microchip industries. So where we can go with, for, with that is uh, nega missions in the Persian Gulf, mission unnecessary. And as you can imagine, the warfighters really like that idea. Also, as we design and build uh, vehicles better, we can use them smarter. This is a graph of the traffic congestion in the morning and evening rush hours. And if that were an electricity load shape, we would be throwing a lot of IT-enabled pricing and demand response and, and uh, smart grid stuff at it to try to flatten it out. But by not yet doing that for road traffic, we are wasting many billions of dollars a year in idle people, idle vehicles, and idle roads. However, we don't have to keep just watching the vehicle miles traveled uh, double as officially forecast, because we now have four very powerful techniques for uh, cutting needless driving. We can charge uh, real-time driving costs per mile, not per gallon. We can use smart IT to enhance transit and empower car sharing and ride sharing. We can uh, allow smart, uh, lucrative real estate models, new urbanism and the like, smart growth, uh, so that more people are already where they want to be. And we can use IT to make traffic free flowing. Uh, Together, these proven methods can give us the same or better access with 46 to 84% less driving saving another $0.4 trillion present value, plus another $0.3 trillion from smarter use of trucks. So 40 years hence, a far more mobile U.S. economy can be using no oil, uh, saving or displacing each barrel for about $25 instead of buying it for over 100 saves $4 trillion uh, net present value, again, counting all of its hidden costs at zero. So to get mobility without oil, we can first get efficient and then switch fuels. So the magenta is the savings already baked into the government forecast. This big aqua wedge uh, is is all the uh, extra efficiency from modern materials, integrative design, uh, electrification. This is the more productive use of vehicles. And then you don't need much fuel. The 125 to 240 mile per gallon equivalent autos can use any mixture of uh, hydrogen fuel cells, electricity, or advanced biofuels. Trucks and airplanes can realistically use advanced biofuels or hydrogen, or the trucks can even burn natural gas, but no vehicles will need oil. And the most biofuel we might need, 3 million barrels a day, can be made two-thirds from waste without using any cropland and without harming soil or climate. Uh, 
Our team at RMI speeds these kinds of oil savings uh, by institutional acupuncture. Uh, where the business logic is congested and not flowing properly, we uh, uh, insert little needles to get it flowing properly, working with partners like Ford and Walmart and the Pentagon. Uh, and in most of the six sectors that need to be transformed, this long transition is already well underway. Indeed, three years ago, mainstream analysts were already starting to see peak oil not in supply but in demand. You know, U.S. gasoline use peaked in aught seven. Uh, OECD oil use, all the rich countries, peaked in aught five. Um, Deutsche Bank three years ago forecast that world oil use could peak around 2016. So, in short, oil is becoming uncompetitive even at low prices before it becomes unavailable even at high prices. But electrified autos that help make that happen don't need to add new burdens to the electricity system. Rather, when they're exchanging electricity and information through smart buildings with a smart grid, they're adding to the grid uh, flexibility and storage that can more easily integrate varying solar and wind power. So electrified autos make the auto and electricity problems easier to solve together than separately. And they also converge the oil story with our second big story, saving electricity and then making it differently. Those two revolutions in electricity uh, <coughs> promise more numerous, diverse, and profound disruptions than in any other sector as 21st century technology and speed collide head-on with 20th and 19th century institutions, rules, and cultures. Changing how we make electricity does get easier if we need less of it. Right now, most of it is wasted, and the technologies for saving electricity keep improving faster than we install them, so the unbought efficiency resource keeps getting ever bigger and cheaper. But as efficiency in buildings and factories keeps uh, growing faster and ultimately grows faster than the economy, America's electricity use could start shrinking uh, despite the slight extra use for electrified autos. And we can do this just by reasonably accelerating existing trends. Over the next 40 years, the buildings that use three-fourths of our electricity can triple or quadruple their energy productivity, saving $1.4 trillion net present value with a 33% internal rate of return. That is, the savings are worth four times their cost. And industry can accelerate, too, doubling its energy productivity with a 21% internal rate of return. Making this possible is a disruptive innovation that we call integrative design, which often makes big energy savings cost less than small or no savings, yielding expanding returns, not diminishing returns. That's how our 2010 retrofit of the Empire State Building is saving over two-fifths of its energy. Uh, remanufacturing those 6,500 windows on-site into super windows that pass light but block heat, plus better lights and office equipment and such, cut the maximum cooling load by a third. And then renovating smaller chillers instead of adding bigger ones saved $17 million that helped pay for the other improvements and cut the payback time to just three years. An even deeper retrofit we now have underway at a big federal office complex in Denver 
is expected next year to make it probably the most efficient office building in the country uh, cost-effectively, even though it's a difficult 48-year-old building that faces the wrong way uh, <coughs> and the retrofit has to include full asbestos abatement, federal blast resistance retrofit, and historic preservation. <laughs> Uh, the owner of the General Services Administration is the nation's largest landlord, managing a half trillion bucks worth of buildings, or about 3% of commercial floor space. <clears throat> or let's go to a small building. My, my own house high in the Rocky Mountains, where it used to go to minus 47F, minus 44C, uh, helped inspire 32,000 passive buildings in Europe that need and have no heating equipment but maintain the same or better comfort at about normal construction cost. And they don't need to look like this to work like this. Now let's go into this atrium. And inside, uh, we're now ripening the last five of 41 banana crops so far. You can see number 37 hanging up there uh, <clears throat> with no furnace. Uh, in 1984, this house was saving 99% of its space and water heating energy and about 90% of its electricity, all with a 10-month payback. Uh, today's technologies, which we've just retrofitted, are even better. Soon I'll be able to tell you how much better. We're commissioning the software uh, to monitor our 300 data streams coming in. Uh, trouble is the... Uh, Monitoring equipment seems to be using more electricity than the lights and appliances it's measuring. <laughs> this design approach works in any climate. We've used it in ordinary-looking tract houses in California in a PG&E experiment to uh, uh, get rid of cooling equipment with better comfort and lower construction cost, up to 115F, 46C. And... Uh, a friend used it in Bangkok to save 90% of his air conditioning with better comfort and normal construction cost. Probably everybody in the world pretty much lives between his climate and my climate. The key is integrative design that gives multiple benefits from single expenditures. You can see, for example, a white arch wrapping around the top there that has 12 functions but only one cost. Integrative design can also increase the half trillion dollars of conventional energy savings in industry. Uh, Dow has already captured $19 billion of savings on a $1 billion investment, but there's lots more to do. For example, uh, three-fifths of the world's electricity runs motors. Uh, half of that runs pumps and fans. And those devices can all be improved, and the motor systems that turn them can save about half their energy with a one-year payback by integrating 35 improvements. But first, we ought to be capturing bigger, cheaper savings that are normally ignored, are not in official studies, are not in the textbooks. For example, pumps, the biggest use of motors, move liquids through pipes. But a standard industrial pumping loop was redesigned to save at least 86% of its pumping energy, not by getting better pumps or motors, but just by replacing uh, long, thin, crooked pipes with fat, short, straight pipes. That also shrinks the pumping equipment and its capital costs. So this is not about new technology. Integrative design is just rearranging your metal furniture to ask different design questions in a different order. So what do such savings mean for the electricity that's three-fifths used in motors? 
Well, from the coal burned in the power plant, through all those compounding losses, only a tenth of the fuel energy actually comes out the pipe as flow. But now let's turn those compounding losses around backwards into compounding savings from right to left, and every unit of flow or friction that we save here in the pipe goes back to save 10 units of fuel and cost and pollution and what Hunter Lovins calls global weirding back at the power plant while also making the upstream components smaller and therefore cheaper. Our team has lately found such snowballing energy savings in over $30 billion worth of industrial redesigns from data centers and chip fabs to mines and refineries. Uh, typically, our retrofit designs save about 30 to 60% of the energy with a two- or three-year payback, and our new facility designs save more like 40 to 90-odd percent with generally lower capital cost. Now, needing less electricity would ease and speed the shift to new sources of electricity, especially renewables. Uh, China is leading their explosive growth and their plummeting costs shown here for uh, photovoltaic modules and wind farms. In fact, the photovoltaic costs have just dropped off the bottom of the chart. Uh, <clears throat> solar and wind power are often marketplace winners today. With a lot of other consequences, Europe now has 1.1 million renewable energy jobs it didn't used to have. The big winner, Germany, now has more solar workers than America has steel workers. Already in about 20 states in this country, private uh, entrepreneurs can put those cheap solar modules on your roof uh, with no money down and beat your utility bill. Uh, combining such unregulated products could ultimately add up to a virtual utility that bypasses your power company just as wireless phones bypass the wireline phone companies. That sort of thing gives utility executives the heebie-jeebies and venture capitalists sweet dreams. Uh, and such competitive threats are real. Half of the world's new generating capacity installed every year starting 2008 has been wind, photovoltaics, and other renewables, uh, the majority lately in developing countries. In fact, in 2010, renewables other than big hydro got $151 billion of private capital, and their total installed capacity actually pulled ahead of that of nuclear power with a half-century head start. Uh, <clears throat> by adding 60 billion watts, only slightly more than the 50 billion watts a year um, that the photovoltaic industry uh, at the end of last year, was able to manufacture every year, and that number's been going up 60 or 70 percent a year. Uh, last year, two-thirds of Europe's new generating capacity was solar, number one, or wind, number three, just edged out by gas. In contrast, the net additions of nuclear power uh, and of coal power have been dwindling, and so have the pipelines of orders behind those uh, because they cost too much and they have too much financial risk to attract investors. In fact, in this country, none of the 30-odd proposed new nuclear projects has been able to get a penny of private investment capital despite seven years of 100-plus percent construction subsidies. 
So how else could we replace the coal-fired plants that make 40-odd percent of our electricity? Well, those coal plants could all be displaced by efficiency and gas at less than just their running cost, or we could displace the coal plants over 40, uh, excuse me, uh, over 20 times uh, with efficiency, gas, and renewables at less than their replacement cost. But we only have to replace the coal plants once. We're often told, though, that only the coal and nuclear plants can keep the lights on because they're 24-7, while solar and wind power are variable and hence supposedly unreliable. Actually, though, no generator is 27. They all break. And when a giant coal or nuclear plant fails, you just lost a billion watts in milliseconds, often for weeks or months, often without warning. That's why the grid has been designed for the past century to back up failed plants with working plants to handle that intermittence of the big thermal stations. And in exactly the same way, grids can handle the forecastable variations of solar and wind power. So hourly simulations uh, show how largely or wholly renewable grids can deliver highly reliable power when they're forecasted and integrated and diversified both by type and by location. Uh, that's true both for continental areas like the U.S. or Europe and for smaller areas embedded within a larger grid. For example, the isolated Texas grid's summer electric load gets smaller and a lot less peaky if you add profitable efficiency. Then you can install wind and solar power, meeting in this case 86% of the annual electricity needs, but as you see, not exactly matching the load, sometimes too much, sometimes too little. Well, you can then complement those variable resources with 14% from dispatchable renewables, that's all the rest, like geothermal, small hydro, solar thermal electric, or in magenta here, uh, feedlot biogas uh, burned in existing gas turbines. And this 100% renewable supply, 86% variable in this case, 14% dispatchable, can then be matched exactly to the load via uh, ice storage, air conditioning, smart charging and discharging of electrified autos. Oops. Back there. Uh, and uh, unobtrusively flexible demand, which uh, is the last color to show up. Just a second, and we'll see what color it is. I think it's going to be orange. So it's sometimes we're using excess renewable capacity to charge uh, cars or make ice in air conditioners, and at other times we're discharging that. Uh, so those are in kind of light blue and yellow, respectively. And then the orange is the unobtrusively flexible demand. You wouldn't know it's happening, but it, it helps match everything up. So all the moving parts fit together. And some utilities are already doing that choreography and integrating variable renewables in that way. Uh, in 2010, four German states were 43 to 52% wind-powered. Portugal was 45% renewable-powered. Denmark, 36%. And now European experience supports a transition over decades uh, 
uh, to largely or wholly renewable electricity for the whole European Union. In this country, our aging, dirty, and insecure power system has to be rebuilt anyway by 2050. And whatever we replace it with is going to cost about the same, uh, roughly $6 trillion net present value to power the country for the next 40 years. That's whether we buy more of what we've got now or new nuclear and so-called clean coal or renewables that can be more centralized or more distributed. But these four futures at about the same cost differ profoundly in their risks uh, around national security, fuel, water, finance, technology, health, uh, and climate. For example, our over-centralized grid is vulnerable to cascading and essentially economy-shattering blackouts uh, caused by solar storms, bad space weather, or other natural disasters, or physical or cyber attack. But that blackout risk disappears, and all the other risks are best managed with distributed renewables reorganized into local microgrids that normally all interconnect, but can stand alone at need. That is, they can break apart fractally, recombine seamlessly, and still keep things going. Uh, So at about the same cost as business as usual, this grid architecture uh, already being successfully piloted in Denmark and applied in Cuba could maximize national security and customer choice and entrepreneurial opportunity and innovation. Together, efficient use and diverse dispersed renewable supply are starting to transform the whole electricity sector. Traditionally, utilities build giant coal and nuclear plants and a bunch of big gas plants and maybe a little efficiency of renewables. And those utilities were rewarded, as they still are in the 36 states, for selling you more electricity, just as dumb as it sounds. But now, especially whereas in this state, regulators instead reward the utilities for, sell, for, uh, for cutting your bills, the market is shifting massively towards efficiency, renewables, demand response, cogeneration, and ways to blend them all together reliably with less transmission and with little or no bulk electricity storage. So our energy future is not fate, but choice, and that choice is very flexible. In 1976, for example, government and industry agreed or insisted that the energy used to make a dollar of GDP could never go down. I heretically suggested in a foreign affairs article that it it could drop several fold. That is what happened. It's dropped by half so far. Uh, But today's far more powerful technologies, integrative design, and maturing delivery channels can now uh, triple energy productivity again, even cheaper. So to solve the energy problem, we just needed to enlarge it. The results may at first seem incredible, but uh, as Marshall McLuhan said, only puny secrets need protection. Big discoveries, he said, are protected by public incredulity. (laughs) Now combine the electricity and oil revolutions I've summarized, both driven by efficiency, and you have the really big story, reinventing fire, with the savings already in the government forecasts in white, uh, further efficiency they didn't count in purple, uh, 
Next down is the more productive use of vehicles in a medium blue. And then this is the quintupling of renewables. The green maintains the share of natural gas, 24% of primary energy, but the absolute amount of gas use drops by uh, a third. Uh, and then the nuclear, coal, and oil go away, displaced by better and cheaper options. So that's a future where business enabled by and, and sped by smart policies in mindful markets can lead the United States completely off oil and coal by 2050, saving $5 trillion, growing the economy 2.6-fold, strengthening our national security, and by eliminating the oil and coal, cutting fossil carbon emissions by 82 to 86 percent. Now, if you like any of those outcomes, any one or more, you can support reinventing fire without needing to like all of the outcomes and without needing to agree about which of them is most important. So focusing on outcomes, not motives, can turn gridlock and conflict into a unifying solution to our nation's energy challenge. These best buys also happen to be the most effective solutions to global problems that impinge on our security as well, like climate change, nuclear proliferation, energy insecurity, energy poverty. Our team at Rocky Mountain Institute helps smart companies to get unstuck and speed this journey via six sectoral implementing initiatives with some more hatching. Uh, of course, there's still a lot of old thinking out there, too, as former oilman Marie Strong said, not all the fossils are in the fuel. Uh, but DuPont's former chairman, Edgar Willard, reminded us that firms hampered by old thinking won't be a problem because, he said, they simply won't be around long term. What I've described here is not just a once-in-a-civilization business opportunity. It's one of the most profound transformations in the history of our species because we humans are inventing a new fire, not dug from below, but flowing from above, not scarce, but bountiful, not local, but everywhere, not transient, but permanent, not costly, but free. And but for the transitional tale of natural gas and a little biofuel grown in ways that sustain or endure, uh, this new fire is flameless. Efficiently used, it really can do our work without working our undoing. Each of you owns a piece of that $5 trillion prize, and our new book, Reinventing Fire, details how each of you can capture that opportunity. So with the conversation recently begun at reinventingfire.com, let me invite each of you to engage with us and with each other and everyone around you to help make the world richer, fairer, cooler, and safer by together reinventing fire. Thank you. Can we get the lights back up? There's a question right in the middle. Yeah, I'll let you take questions, and uh, just so you know, we had advertised this, I think, until 2.30, uh, but Amory's going to be able to stay a little longer, so if you need to slip out, 
Of course you may, but I think we'll be able to go until closer to 3 o'clock. Sure. Are we supposed to use the uh, You know, I think it's going to be better. Speak up. <laughs> oh. Anyway, thank you for a wonderful talk. I've been reading you since the 70s and big fan. Um, you aren't that old. What's that? You aren't that old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was in college then. I was in college and the U.S. was going to go kill people on the other side of the world for a while. It's hard to believe. Can't imagine that now. Anyway, um, one, one place that I didn't see enough emphasis for my taste is on livable communities and eliminating the need for driving. I know you mentioned this, but uh, the idea should be that... Uh, you know, we design our communities so that we we use transit and uh, are walking not just to save energy, but for quality of life. And one concern that I have is that what I see too much of now is this idea that oh, everybody just goes and buys a Prius, and then we keep on sitting in traffic jams. And sure, my commute is ten meters across the jungle. I should install vines and swing to work. Uh, but you'll notice that's the biggest uh, part of the driving reduction that we analyze. Uh, it's it's a 20, 20 to 30% less, less driving, which is very considerable. Uh, my question is this. You, um, you, you describe this as an end run around Washington. Around Congress. Around Congress. Now, remember, there, there is policy innovation needed, but it turns out it can all be done administratively or at a state level. Yes. Now, some of the administratively part is indeed in Washington. For example, the Federal en- Energy Regulatory Commission under John Wellinghoff's leadership is doing a terrific job of uh, providing grid access, trans- pricing transparency, symmetry, uh, so that all options can compete. Like demand response has now been ordered to receive the same payment for equal work compared with supply. And I think one of their next topics is likely to be expanding from 13 states to all the states, the ability of demand-side resources to compete in supply-side auctions. These things are kind of obvious but missing. Uh, However, we already regulate utilities almost entirely at a state level, and other stuff like fee-based can be done at a state level. So it doesn't need Congress, although you could do it through Congress. Well, here's my question. A lot of people, and myself included, would say that what we're looking at is essentially corruption. In other words, the the level of... I'm shocked. (laughs) What do you mean? We have the best government money can buy. Precisely. We we work on a $1, one-vote system. But doesn't that create a problem at some level? Yes, that's uh, why the necessity of the end run. Okay. Okay. Uh, certainly, if we if we had uh, a legislature that actually represented the public interest consistently, uh, this wouldn't be necessary. But fortunately, in our complex federal system, uh, we have a lot of ways to get things done. And since, in a sense, corporations do rule the world, uh, their incentives can result in good outcomes if they do sensible stuff because you demand it. I don't know why the auto industry is forgetting that is, there's another material called glass fiber. Of course. And, 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 and that has such wonderful properties and probably, probably about one-tenth the cost of carbon fiber. Yeah, and, and one of the tricks you can do is to mix the two with some of the production processes so you get properties more like carbon and cost more like glass. Glass fiber has been used in Corvette for a 
and can do so anisotropically. That is, the, the flat tailored blank is laid up at, well, with the old machine, 2.6 meters per second per layer, and the new ones are a lot faster. Uh, but you can make the fibers mix and point in such directions that you get stiffness and strength only in the directions you want in the finished part. And that anisotropy, which metal designers don't know how to exploit, uh, is a, a, a wonderful way to save still more mass and cost. Mm-hmm. Sir? Uh, you talked about how um, dispatchable renewable energies and energy storage can uh, enable greater penetration of variable generation utilities like wind and solar. So I have two questions. Uh, what are the biggest obstacles stopping dispatchable energies from becoming more prevalent, and what do you think is the best type of... Uh, energy storage technology to achieve this um, ideal system of all renewables? Hmm. Well, ice storage on HVAC, like the Ice Bear, uh, and distributed uh, storage in electrified vehicles with smart charging and discharging are the most interesting. Uh, The latter, because you're already paying for the batteries for transport, with a 4% asset utilization. So 96% of the time, the asset is sitting idle, and you may as well make money off it. Of course, when you charge and discharge it for the utilities purposes uh, from your parking space, uh, you're slightly degrading the life of the battery. So you have to get compensated for that, too. But that's pretty straightforward to do with the chips already built into the pack. and there are a lot of interesting afterlife, you know, reincarnation, et cetera, business models that the parties are looking at. Uh, <clears throat> if you're asking about bulk electricity storage, that is still a sixth way of making the grid work reliably with a lot of variable renewables. Uh, that is, you forecast the variable renewables. It's called weather forecasting. We're pretty good at it. And actually, in Europe now, an hour or more ahead, they can often forecast wind more accurately than demand. Uh, You diversify by type so that weather bad for one kind is good for another. You diversify by location so they don't all see the same weather at the same time. And then you integrate with flexible supplies on the grid and with flexible demand side resources. Demand response, for example, high storage. And uh, when you you add up those five, in the Texas illustration I showed, that was sufficient for 100% renewables. But, of course, another... Sorry, there's actually seven, aren't there? So a a, a sixth method 
uh, would be that your flexible supplies uh, are actually renewable themselves. They could be variable renewables in a different place. For example, in each of the three uh, power pools from Texas to the Canadian border, we showed that you could actually provide the same firm power with less than half as much wind capacity by picking anti-correlated sites, which oddly the developers didn't do. They left half their money on the table, but you could do it after the fact with synthetic contracts. Uh, or you can use dispatchable renewables. Uh, and the, the, those are often doing fine. Uh, small hydro continues to add, I think it's upwards of five or six gigawatts a year worldwide. Um, geothermal is starting to get quite interesting with new drilling and downhole heat exchange techniques. Uh, the, um, the solar thermal electric stores heat so it can produce power in the evening or even all night if you want. Heat storage is fairly cheap. At the moment, it's, uh, you, you, can, you can make it pay in, in certain applications. Photovoltaics will probably overtake it, but don't have that built-in storage ability. Uh, and then there's, of course, biomass combustion, waste combustion. I gave the example of uh, feedlot biogas. Since, as we say in Colorado, Texas is full of crap, you can do a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> And uh, you know when you when you add up the pieces, there is plenty of dispatchability available in each region. Um, uh, watch this space. Uh, the government should shortly publish a study of eighty or ninety percent renewable power for the U.S. Very well done, and we actually use the same model. It seems like the uh, flow of ideas is something that has to precede the, the flow what? of the flow of ideas between yeah. people is something that has to precede the flow of more um, efficient energy, excuse me, more efficient energy. Um, I'm just wondering what you think would be the most important ways of kind of changing the culture and, I don't know, changing um, people's attitudes in regards to that. I would, I, would, uh, I would work on changing behavior because that drives attitude, not the other way around. Uh, and, in fact, as a, a sociologist just reminded me the other day in Indiana that this, was this has been known since the 50s and was learned in great detail in desegregating our military. Uh, if you tried to change, as they first did, people's attitudes of racism, you didn't get very far. But if you drove collaborative behaviors by, by putting people of different races in a situation where they would have to work together under defined military rules, then attitudes change rather quickly. You discover these are actually your buddies. You know. And the Garrison Institute has run some very interesting seminars uh, applying this to behavior and using energy. I would say generally, if you're trying to change people's minds, uh, Saul Alinsky had a bunch of good advice about talking to folks where they're at, not where you're at. Speak to their concerns in their language. Uh, don't feel some special relish for inflicting your truth on them. Meeting people. Listen, listen a lot. Yeah, exactly. And uh, by. Sorry, which institute you said? Uh, the Garrison Institute? Sorry? 
Which institute applied it to? Garrison. Yeah, it's up in the Hudson Valley run by uh, the real estate developer Jonathan Rose in New York. And uh, there is a, a lot of very good community organizing literature, uh, well, and, you know, a lot of other traditions. Um, St. Francis said, uh, uh, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. <laughs> Sir? What about public transportation? Yeah, there we have some of that in here. I, I didn't, however, want uh, wanted to be thought that we were making everybody ride bikes if they didn't want to. Uh, so we used a fairly minor contribution of that. The vehicles are so efficient anyway; it, it doesn't make a big difference to the outcome. But you can make transit enormously more attractive, effective, and cost-effective by putting smart IT and better design into it, including community design. Sir? Given a lot of the time scales, 2050, um, what do you think of venture capital as a source of innovation capital, um, given that conventional venture capital is a 10-year fund? Do you think that there's a role here to get there? Yes, yeah, certainly. And a lot of VCs have terrific portfolios in this area. Uh, even more interesting, of course, are angels, although the current uh, uh, fashion of cramming down the people who took the most risk uh, rather discourages them. And I don't think that's very smart because it tends to cut off the deal flow into VCs at a later stage. Sir? With all the problems with our existing grid needing to be upgraded, talked about a micro grid and militaries looking at getting getting off the grid and having their own micro grid what what does that look like ideally well it can be at the scale of a number of buildings that have diverse loads uh, or a village or a neighborhood or a town uh, in Denmark they're they've been piloting very nicely the reorganization of the grid into what they call cells it's a cellular organization and every year they stress test it by cutting it off from the main grid to make sure the critical loads are still served, which they are. The, the most interesting large-scale example I've run into is Cuba. I don't think I would like to live in Cuba, but they did a very interesting thing. They had 11 large geriatric uh, Soviet heavy oil plants running the grid in a very centralized hub-and-spokes fashion. And by 2005, they had 224 days a year of serious blackouts. So Raul and Fidel Castro said, fix this. And it happened that the guy they called on to fix it in the energy ministry had read some of my stuff in the 70s and said, gee, maybe a decentralized and demand-oriented solution would look good. So what they did was get a shipload of Chinese best energy star rated appliances and lights on export credits and since it's a dictatorship they had them all over the country in nine months they did public education inverted tariffs uh, and then they they needed a bunch of distributed generators and they couldn't get it at the time into the wind power <coughs> wind power acquisition queue uh, fast enough, because it was at the peak of a boom and the suppliers were struggling to make enough gearboxes and so on. So they bought a whole bunch of Caterpillar generators 
And uh, Hugo Chavez gives them oil for free in exchange for doctors, so they weren't worried about the oil price for now. They will go to wind and PVs later. Uh, and then they reorganized the grid as netted islandable microgrids. Islandable meaning that the distributed generators can work with or without the grid, as my house does. I don't even know if the grid goes down. It's a very nice feeling. The whole house is an uninterruptible power supply. So they went from 224 severe blackout days in aught 5 to 3 in aught 6 and 0 in aught 7. And in aught 8, two hurricanes in two weeks shredded their eastern grid, and they were still able to sustain vital services. I thought that was a very impressive example of what fairly simple uh, reorganization can do. Sir? So, um, is this on? Okay. So for, for those of us who are students, graduate and undergraduate, and are looking to enter the workforce soon, you know, where, can, uh, where should we be looking if we're interested in, in contributing to this transformation through our careers? Whatever you have juice for, uh, that is, the four sectors, transport, built environment, industry, electricity, are all enormously diverse. They encompass most of the economy. Uh, I would just advise you to learn as many different things as you can. And if, if your advisor looks at your course of study and says, I don't see how this is related to that, you're probably on the right track. <laughs> so let me let you in on an important secret that I was lucky enough to learn early. There are few, if any, disciplines that a smart and motivated person can't learn as much about in six months as most, not all, but most people in the field know. And once you understand that, you can be perfectly uninhibited, jump the fences, walk on the grass, and learn whatever you want and need to. Uh, so, you know, don't take any crap from the administration. I'm, I've actually dropped out of two great universities because they wanted me to specialize too much. So all my degrees are honorary. And uh, uh, I, would, I would urge you just to go learn what you need to uh, with, uh, fearlessly without inhibition. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.